Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, the Little Sisters of the Poor. And Richard, the Supreme Court just recently heard oral arguments in the case, the actual name of the case is Zubik B. Burwell, known though in many quarters as the Little Sisters of the Poor case. That's one of the religious organizations suing the government here. So this is a case involving the Affordable Care Act, something of a follow-on to the Hobby Lobby case. Why don't you just start by just explaining the basics that are at issue here? Sure. I mean, uh, the Affordable Care Act is a very complicated statute, and one of the things it does is it gives the uh, HHS the power to put together various regulations dealing with health care for various groups, including women. And in the Hobby Lobby case, what they did is they came up with a very aggressive regulation, or so I would argue, uh, which announced that certain kinds of corporate and business employers were required to supply uh, contraceptive and abortion coverage with respect to women, even if it were against the religious beliefs of the owners. Uh, this, this case was decided by a 5-4 vote um, in favor of the Hobby Lobby organization, saying in effect that if you looked at RIFR, the Religious Free Freedom Restoration Act, not the Constitution. Uh, what it did is it had to show that there was a substantial burden on the organization, and I think they could show that. Uh, then there was the question as to whether or not there was a compelling state interest, and it turned out instructively Justice Alito, for a variety of reasons, refused to address the question of whether the promotion of women's health counts as a compelling state interest. But he argued that even if it did, this was not going to be an appropriate solution to require them to do it, because after all, you could always have some insurance company uh, do this kind of thing. And uh, that, in effect, set up the stage for the next case. Uh, because the Litter Sisters are not a business organization. They are a devout Catholic organization, but they are not a church. And so they were met with the requirement that they, in effect, make the very accommodation uh, that Justice um, Alito um, thought was appropriate. But as ever, there's always a catch. And the key point of debate in this particular case was exactly what the accommodation was. Uh, on the one hand, it appeared that uh, some of the justices, most notably the three liberal justices, said that all you had to do if you were the Little Sisters was to sign a piece of paper saying that you opt out of the system. Uh, but the lawyers for these organizations, Paul Clement and Noel Francisco, said that's not what's at stake at all. The only way we could opt out is to authorize the federal government to turn against the insurance company or third-party uh, administrator if there is no insurance company and charge it without compensation, I might add, to pick the coverage in question. And according to religious law, uh, any time that you do an act which furthers something which is against your principles, you're aiding and abetting, so you're guilty of the wrong of complicity, that fits the federal definitions. And so what you now have is this odd situation, a case undecided, 4-4 in the likelihood, a turning on the issue, in my view, is exactly what this provides. I I've been told, but I have not confirmed, uh, that the Supreme Court today issued a two-page letter urging the parties to settle this case on terms that might actually make the distinction between authorization and uh, uh, and simply opting out clearer. Um, and in any event, the intervention of the Supreme Court on these grounds would be quite extraordinary, but I believe it did happen. And so there it sits. 
And, you know, if you listen to the oral argument on both sides, um, it was the typical pattern you see today. Uh, the liberals, particularly the three women on the court, really went after Clement and uh, uh, Francisco. And then when it turned out Mr. Verrilli got up for the government, turnabout was fair play. Uh, so what's happened is, you know, that the passage of Justice Scalia, he's no longer alive, means that it's in all likelihood a 4-4 outcome. Let me get you to parse for our non-sort of legal specialists a couple of the terms that you use there and a couple of the terms that are sort of central to this case. When you say a compelling state interest, what does that mean in, in legal terms? Well, I mean, it it often depends on what other people want it to mean, but let's put it in, I mean, let's put it in, in terms of the canonical versions before you get to the fine points. Uh, American constitutional law depends as much on the standard of review that you give to a piece of legislation or to an administrative order as it does on any particular substantive text. And so if you start looking at something and you're told that all you need to do is to have a rational basis for it, it means that any old bad argument that somebody makes with a straight face is going to be sufficient to sustain the statute. And so when you have to ask whether or not property is taken for a public use, it is constantly said that if there's a conceivable rationalization for what's going on, we don't look further. Congress knows best on what's happening. Uh, then there's something sort of in between, which talks about intermediate scrutiny and says, you know, uh, we really think that the government has high stakes in this case, but so do individuals. We've got to figure out what's going on. And you tend to weight the areas of over-inclusion and under-inclusion about equal and so there's no presumption either for or against the constitutionality of the statute. In practice, intermediate scrutiny shies a little bit closer, I think, to compelling state interest than it does to rational basis. And compelling state interest means, or at least it used to mean, that it's the kind of interest so severe that the state could not function as a state unless it manages to supply that. So uh, you have a compelling state interest in order to control massive disruption, um, rebellion, disunion, right? Insurrection insurrection, rioting would be the kind of typical situation. If you're running a prison, uh, you can segregate groups by religion if it's the only way in which you could start to keep the peace. Uh, when you get, however, into the modern stuff, things that used to be rational basis all of a sudden seem to be compelling state interest, and there's no question that justices like Justice Ginsburg, Sotomayor, and Kagan think that the provision of women's health care should, in fact, count as a compelling state interest. And when I wrote about this in the Hobby Lobby connection in uh, uh, the Cato Journal some time ago, Supreme Court Review, um, I took exactly the opposite position. To me, if you're talking about the provision of benefits, a compelling state interest only arises when it turns out that there's a single supplier of a particular good and he refuses or would like to refuse to do business with a certain class of people. Uh, so you're talking about common carriers or electric companies refusing to serve women or to serve blocks. But I do not believe that there there's ever a state-compelled interest to deal with issues or when it turns out that the goods and questions can be competitively supplied by all sorts of other people. And in this case, of course, the application is even more complicated. Suppose you say that there is a compelling state interest, which I don't concede, uh, for women to receive contraceptive care. Uh, does it follow that the little there's a compelling state interest to make the little sisters pay for it? And I just don't see what the connection is. You can have it paid for in any particular way. In the argument, many of the justices on this side, particular Sotomayor and Kagan, starting to talk about seamless coverage. But I don't have seamless 
seamless coverage. I mean, my coverage is partly private and my coverage is partly through Medicare. Everybody on Medicare or many people at least have Medigap insurance and so forth. I've got a separate dental policy or so I could. Uh, so, you know, everybody else's insurance is a hodgepodge. And to say that there's a compelling state interest to organize things in a given way when 99% of the market is organized differently strikes me as fantasy rather than law. Richard, you mentioned early in this conversation, you referred to the contraceptive mandate as a regulation, and that gets lost in this a lot. This comes out of the regulatory rulemaking process from the Department of Health and Human Services um, as part of the law's directive to provide preventative services. It's not actually in the statute. Does that have any bearing on the federal government's case that this language didn't come from Congress but instead from an executive branch agency? Well, the simplest explanation is that the Religious Freedom Restoration Act applies to any future statute or regulation unless it's expressly put to one side. And since a regulation cannot possibly put a statute to one side, um, it means that there's no special priority by virtue of the fact that the regulation comes later than the uh, basic statute. In terms of the interpretation of this thing, again, um, there is no special benefit. What the statute is pretty clear about is that as RIFRA is that the state must demonstrate, the word is demonstrate, uh, that the um, end is compelling and that there are no narrow means on which to do this. And if you listen to the argument when Justice Kagan starts to say, you know, uh, the world is going to come to an end, we have all sorts of distinctions between big businesses and small business, all sorts of transitional changes. Uh, that's certainly true. But that's the kind of argument you put forward in order to justify something when you need to show a rational basis, like explaining, well, why is it the Fair Labor Standard Act exempts employers of under 10 people? Or why is it that overtime is set at a certain level rather than at some other level and so forth? Um, so I think, in effect, that the, the case to my mind is not close. Once you concede the point that authorization goes far beyond the opt-out because the compelling state interest strikes me as being somewhat of a sham and in effect there's no nexus between what little sisters do and what the women need if the government is to provide it. Uh, they can provide for it out of general revenues as they do for so many other welfare benefits and uh, Noel Francisco in arguing said look you know there are all sorts of women who are not covered by any of these statutes who pay for their own contraceptives. If you believe that this was such a compelling state interest why do you have all of these gaps? Uh, and he was kind of shooed down by, by the liberal justices is saying, you know, um, this is all something that uh, Congress should be able to take care of. It's not something that uh, you should come up to high principle. And, and Justice Kagan, I think, made a very unfortunate uh, move in this particular situation. She said, you know, churches are special and that therefore when we give the total exemption to churches, we understand that there's a difference between churches and little sisters of the poor. Um, if you actually look at the statute, it doesn't talk about churches, it talks about religious freedom, uh, the Constitution talks about the free exercise clause, uh, the little sisters of the poor are protected as charities under the IRS, internal revenue um, regulations, there's certainly charities at common law. I mean, to argue that you have to make this kind of, or should make this kind of distinction between the two of them, I think you can't have a compelling state interest to differentiate between two things which have been treated the same in so many other contexts. I mean, I wish I could say that this were a hard case, uh, but I really don't believe that it is. And, and this is said by somebody whose non-Catholic credentials are perfectly impeccable. <laughs> Let me get you to address one of the most common arguments that you'll hear from people on the other side of this issue from you. I realize it's an overbroad one, but I want to put it to you as I as I usually hear it, which is one of the things that you hear a lot is that if you insulate 
religiously sanctioned behavior from otherwise sort of broadly applicable laws, you're inviting chaos. And the, the sort of the classic example is, well, what if someone thinks that they have a religious imperative not to pay their taxes or not to abide by certain criminal laws? Hey, what's the sort of quick rejoinder to that, Richard? Okay, well, it's, let's just take them in part because the uh, first one, not pay your taxes, was actually raised by Justice Breyer. And, and I think the answer sort of goes to that one as follows. Um, everybody in society benefits or doesn't benefit from certain provision of certain kinds of public goods. Um, if you go back and take the old account of public goods that was organized by Manker Olson in 1965, he made his life much too easy. What he claimed in effect is that what government does is provide things that everybody wants and everybody wants in equal measure and they can't coordinate. So you impose the tax, give them a benefit. Everybody is better off in this kind of collective coercion situation than they are if it turns out that you have voluntary transactions which can never provide for public goods. What he missed in that book and which people often forget is, you know, buying military may be a public good, but going into Iraq need not be a public good. There are people who are fiercely opposed to it and others who are fully in favor of it. And if you had a world in which everybody could opt out of the collective goods that are provided for by government, uh, then there would truly be chaos. And so what you do is you say everybody's entitled to have deliberative participation on the voting of these things, and then when we decide it, we're all bound, just as we're all bound to a police force, which some people don't like the way in which it operates and so forth. And religious organizations, their protection comes from the fact that they're not singled out in the kinds of uh, behaviors that they have to yield to, but they certainly, to the extent that they're involved, they have to basically respect the basic rules. Occasionally, you allow for conscientious objectives, but usually with some kind of alternative services. And life goes on because what you do is you understand the general tax obligation as being financial and therefore not one of uniquely personal arrangements. And then when it actually comes to individual services, we make accommodations. It's not perfect, but you know the system has been used here and in other countries for a very long time. That seems to be perfectly fine. Uh, now, when you start getting to the question of exempting people from the anti-discrimination laws, um, you don't have a situation for chaos. Let me give you an illustration. Uh, there was a case called Lee against the United States decided in 1982, and you have the Amish. And what they say is, even if we have to pay into Social Security, we will not take anything out of this particular system because we believe that we have to take care of our own members. So we'd rather not pay. And Justice Berger, I think it was, writes this dreadful opinion in which he announced that the entire system will break up if you exclude these kinds of people. But that's nonsense. Um, if they don't want anything out of the system, you exclude them from the base. What you've done is you've protected them from making transfers to everybody else. And now you have a perfectly stable pool of people. You can figure out who's in it, who's out of it, and balance the accounts any way that you turn out. There's no chaos by giving that kind of an exemption. And in fact, the, the court acknowledges much by saying if Congress wanted to do it um, under its view of the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause taken in tandem, they would be fine. So the chaos argument is absolutely beyond, I think, uh, beyond the pale. It is not correct. In fact, I will go further. As you know, I've been a diehard opponent of all the anti-discrimination laws as they apply to private employment cases. And the, one of the reasons I'm opposed to it is if you put these laws into place, A, they're inherently coercive, but it means any time you now give a dispensation 
from the coercion imposed by these laws, somebody, including professors in the, of the liberal persuasion in this particular case, will come forward and say, giving a preference to religious organizations by exempting them from the anti-discrimination laws now turns out to be an establishment clause violation. Um, so you don't want to live in a universe where everything's either an establishment clause violation on the one hand or a free exercise clause violation on the other hand. You'd much rather live in a world in which government is smaller so you don't have to deal with these conflicts. And then when you do face these conflicts, the appropriate response with respect to personal behaviors is an accommodation. You don't want to run a military in which it turns out that a Jewish person cannot wear his kippah, his head covering, uh, while sitting in a hospital somewhere. But you certainly don't want these people to be able to go into combat and to decide to stand up and to do religious ceremonies when they're going to endanger everybody else with their sorts of behavior. And accommodations are extremely difficult to work, and it requires that people be in good faith. And what's happened with the current level of discourse on all of these issues, there's so much shrillness on both sides that working out accommodations, which seemed to be possible when RIFRA was adopted in 1993, doesn't seem to be so possible today. So last thing I'll ask you then, especially because you brought it up there, I mean the uh, anti-discrimination law seems to be the other big front on which this is playing out right now besides the contraception mandate. In fact, earlier the week we're recording this, the Republican governor of the very Republican state of Georgia decided to veto a bill that would have protected religious believers under the kinds of circumstances that you're describing. So – Play this out for me. How concerned should religious Americans be that their rights of conscience are under threat? Well, I'm very concerned and I'm not particularly religious. I think it's just remarkable to see what the difference is between now and over 20 years ago when you had bipartisan support for a statute that was virtually unanimous. And look, there are two ways in which you want to think about religion. And one of them is there are lots of religious people who are opposed to same-sex marriage. And my view is that it is not a legitimate thing for the state to say, we're opposed to what you guys do. We're going to ban it because we're offended. And so I'm certainly in favor of this, if they want to have a union, by all means do it. Indeed, I think one of the most illiberal decisions that the Supreme Court ever handed down, which is still good law, was a case called Reynolds against the United States in about 1878, in which polygamy was declared to be a criminal offense, notwithstanding the fact that it was an exercise of somebody's religion. And so one of the things that we see is why on the earth would you want to criminalize that behavior and force the forfeiture of property and throw people into jail? Um, and I often ask my advocates of gay rights, why it is that they're in favor of same-sex marriage, which is a novelty, relatively speaking, whereas polygamy was a common practice, and for that they won't even open up their mouths to protest its, criminaliz its criminalization. I think, in effect, that uh, if anything, the case is stronger with respect to polygamy, you've got a religious hook, the free exercise clause on which you could put it, so you don't have to deal with equal protection, which is simply misapplied in this context, um, and it also is a historically traditional practice, whereas same-sex marriage, generally speaking, is a creature of the last generation. Uh, so I'm with you on freedom of association grounds. But when they're trying to do forced association grounds and to make ministers um, provide services or to make bakers provide cakes for same-sex couples, again, I will say the same point I made before. You're talking about a situation where all these services are competitively provided. There are a thousand people who are willing to make cakes for same-sex couples. Why on earth should we force somebody to the choice of either going out of business, paying an enormous 
norms fine or making a cake against conscience for a union that they don't want. And yet when you listen to the way the rhetoric goes, uh, these people who object on grounds of conscience are treated as though they're the heir apparent to Adolf Hitler, uh, that they're responsible for pogroms and for things that are worse. Um, it's just a complete failure to understand that a refusal to deal in a competitive market is a mark of liberty, whereas a refusal to deal in a monopolistic market is in fact a breach of a public trust. But there are no monopoly markets in food services or in catering services of one kind or another, and I think that should be respected. And what's happened is the American Civil Liberties Union does not believe in civil liberties, because if it did, it would be on exactly the opposite side on these cases. And in fact, the danger is that when libertarian organizations, at least self-professed ones, now are in favor of forced association, it turns out that they become the greatest peril. And, you know, I'm a pretty consistent libertarian on both economic issues and on social issues. And there was a time when one would have said, oh, the Democrats were a bit more tolerant on social issues, but now I'm afraid they're less tolerant. And that's really a black mark against them. And, you know, I beg, I urge, I plead that they all reconsider what they do, but they haven't. In fact, they published an editorial recently in the Washington Post explaining why it is that they can no longer support RIFR. I regard this as genuinely retrograde behavior. Um, I think the importance of Tolerance is not for people with whom you agree. You don't have to be tolerant for them. But if you find other people's belief genuinely offensive, that's when tolerance kicks in and should tell you my offense does not justify the imposition of an anti-discrimination law. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at Hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard A. Epstein. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.